the producers of the Sausage of Science podcast. This week, we have another bonus episode featuring a reading by Dr. Sarah Young from her book, Craving Earth, Understanding Pika, the Urge to Eat Clay, Starch, Ice, and Chalk. After the reading of the preface in Chapter 1, you'll hear a rerun of Dr. Young's interview with Chris and Kara, originally released last year. I'm Sarah Young, and I'm reading an excerpt from my book, Craving Earth. Subtitle, Understanding Pika, the Urge to Eat Clay, Starch, Ice, and Chalk. Preface. Every day, twice a day, I take a chunk of earth from this wall, and, well, I eat it. Had I understood Mama Sharifa correctly? We were sitting on a woven palm mat in the only shade in her sun-baked yard in a tiny Zanzibari island called Pemba. There were three of us, Mama Sharifa, Biubwa, my research assistant, and me. Our backs were against the dirt wall of her outdoor kitchen, our legs stretched out in front of us, discussing the things that she eats during pregnancy. With raised eyebrows, I looked to Biubwa to confirm that I had indeed understood her Swahili. Biubwa nodded, yes, she's saying she eats earth. But why, I asked. Mama Sharifa bent at the waist as much as her pregnant belly would allow to idly slap at a fly on her ankle. Then she looked away from us. I just eat it, that's all. Her pink and orange kanga, a light cotton cloth frequently worn as a head covering, shifted over her shoulder and obscured her face, and I feared she would say no more on the matter. But, after a long pause, her arm reached out from under the kanga. She turned toward us plucked a chunk of earth from the highest part of the wall she could reach, and displayed it in her open palm. I looked from the chunk of earth in her hand to her face, and then back to her hand. I smiled at her and repeated my question. But why, Mama? She was giggling by then, out of what I've come to recognize as a combination of embarrassment and sheer inability to answer this question. She brushed at some dust on her long skirt, then stared off into the distance again. And then she locked eyes with me. I don't know. I really don't know. I just do it. She offered the earth to me and I took it. First, I smelled it. Then, I touched it to the tip of my tongue. Then, I nibbled into it. It tasted bland, like old air. But after I swallowed, my tongue felt different, dried out, as if from the astringency of tea that had been brewed for too long. A few grains of sand remained in my mouth long after we had moved on to other topics. But for the rest of that research period in Pemba, and for the many that have since followed, I learned as much about earth-eating as I could. I asked pregnant women about their motivations. I quizzed fellow passengers on buses. I asked the old men drinking Arabic coffee at dusk. I probed nurses in the antenatal clinics. What other non-food items did people crave? Did all pregnant women have these cravings? Was it only pregnant women? Did anyone know why they had it? Where did this idea to eat these things come from? Is it some sort of religious phenomenon? Which earth is the stuff for eating? However, my pestering raised more questions than it answered. During another interview that summer, the responsibility for understanding pica was unexpectedly shifted to me. I asked Mama Hadidya, the second wife of a traditional healer, if she knew why people eat earth. Uh, no, I don't know. Do you have any ideas about why some people sometimes eat it? No. Are you sure? Yes. Not even one idea? This time, though, she didn't reply, but just looked at me, smiling slightly, shaking her head as one does with an incorrigible child. I sheepishly apologize for asking so many questions. But she then said something that changed the trajectory of my academic pursuits. She pointed at my clipboard and tape recorder and said, Since you're the researcher, why don't you find out and tell us? And with that, dear reader, our adventures with Pika begin. Chapter 1. What on Earth? Mama Sharifa eats chunks from the earthen wall of her outdoor kitchen in Zanzibar, while in Washington, D.C., Pat crunches through a 10-pound bag of ice from 7-Eleven every day. In New Delhi, Simran starts her morning with a handful of uncooked rice, and in Mississippi, Tanya eats Argo starch, but only after her husband has gone to work. 
In Guatemala City, Carlita nibbles little blocks of clay with a Virgin Mary pressed into them, while in California, D'Angela buys 10 boxes of chalkboard chalk for snacking whenever she can get to a Walmart. What is the common denominator? Well, these are all instances of pica. Pica is a scientific term for the craving and subsequent consumption of non-food items. It's not an acronym or an abbreviation or a famous physician's last name. Pica pica is the genus and species of the common magpie. Magpies are frequently seen with all sorts of items in their beaks, from chewing gum wrappers to wire hangers. Because of their attraction to sparkly objects, they were thought to be birds with an indiscriminate appetite. As it turns out, they don't swallow these items, they build their nests with them. And by analogy, the human condition of desiring non-food items was given the name pica in the 6th century by Eddius of Amida. I use the term pica to mean the craving and purposive consumption of items that the consumer does not consider to be food and does so for more than a month. Pica is not the only name for this behavior, however. Eating non-food items has been referred to in many ways in the 2,000 years that people have been writing about it. Some terms are very arcane. Sita, for example, is a term that Galen used for pica. That's Greek for ivy, but it may be a misspelling of kita, which is Greek for magpie or jay. Other general terms have been used as synonyms for pica, including cachexia, cachexia africana, something that I don't know how to pronounce, spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-O-P-H-A-G-I-A, hapsicoria, maldestomac, malassia, and pararexia. Pica is a general term, and in modern medical literature, eating non-food items is frequently referred to in more specific ways. Names for specific types of pica generally have Greek origins. They combine the names of specific substances like geo for earth, amylon, starch, and pagos, ice, with phagin, which means to eat, thus yielding the terms geophagy, amylophagy, and pagophagy. As an aside, they can also be pronounced geophagy. The pica substances. Earth is the most commonly craved substance, but it is far from the only one. In fact, the list of pica substances is very long. In roughly descending order of frequency, it also includes cornstarch, ice when consumed in large quantities, chalk, charcoal, ash, flour, newspaper, toilet paper, used coffee grounds, baby powder, and paint chips. While this list may seem highly heterogeneous, there is one commonality. With the exception of ice, all of these substances are dry, powdery, and absorptive, and most of them are rather crunchy. Just as we now know that the magpie's appetite is not indiscriminate, those non-food items in their beaks are housing materials, not lunch. Pica cravings are not indiscriminate either. People regularly go out of their way to obtain items that have the precise odor, texture, and taste they desire, as you'll see in the following descriptions of the three most frequently craved pica substances. Earth, aka geophagy, geophagy. Humans have been consuming earth for a very long time. There is good evidence to suggest that we were even eating it two million years ago when we, Homo sapiens, were still Homo habilis. Earth is consumed in many forms and comes from many sources, including mud from a riverbed, broken bits of pottery, earth clods found among dry pinto beans, and so on. The amount consumed daily varies, but quantities of 20 to 40 grams are typically reported. Most of the earth consumed is rich in clay. Although clays may seem unremarkable, they have some amazing properties that are discussed at length in Chapter 3. But not just any earth will do. People go to extreme lengths to obtain the earth of their heart's desire. They may be secretive about the whereabouts of their clay, walk many miles to the site with good dirt, tussle with the cattle who are also eating their clay, and implore relatives to mail boxes of clay when they move to a place with unappetizing soil. The smoothest soils, i.e. those with high clay content, are the most sought after, from the Arctic to the Amazon, and everywhere in between. Sandy soils and soils high in dark organic matter, called humus, are typically avoided. The smell of earth is an important criterion for soil selection the world over. 
the Earth's scent after rain, called petrichor, is a particularly important indicator of its suitability. During ethnographic interviews, women's mouths would literally water as they described to me the appealing smell of freshly moistened earth. Another criterion for geophages is that their dirt be clean. Most earth for consumption is collected from places where animals do not tread and therefore can't defecate, such as from areas high up on a wall or the interior of a well. Others ensure the hygiene of the earth by drying and or heating it, either in the sun or over open flame. One of the stories that best illustrates the acuity of geophagic selectivity involves a geophagic wife, a devoted husband anxious to avoid trouble, and police surveillance in Memphis, Tennessee. The wife sent her husband to get her some clay from her favorite riverbank. She did not want to go because police had been staking out the site, suspicious of the many small holes dug into the bank. But she just had to have some. So the husband dutifully left the house and returned with a bag of earth for her. When she opened it, she knew immediately that it was not from her favorite riverbank. She sent him right back out for earth from the correct stakeout riverbank. Earth eating is far more common than just a few cases here and there. Estimates range from less than 0.01% among pregnant Danish women to 5.2% among pregnant Pembins, says Zanzibar Archipelago, to 56% among pregnant women in coastal Kenya. In Appendices B and C, studies are summarize the prevalence of different types of pica among representative samples of pregnant women and children, respectively. Commoditization is a great indicator of demand, and yes, geophagic earth is now for sale. In fact, there is enough demand across the United States that Sam's General Store, a shop in White Plains, Georgia, that sells geophagic earth has established an online presence. They sell earth in two-pound increments marked as a novelty item, probably to avoid any lawsuits. And just in case you are worried about what the postman may think, their deliveries arrive discreetly in unmarked cardboard boxes. Sam's General Store sells kaolin, which many geophagists consider to be the most desirable type of clay. However, there are many types of earth eaten and almost as many names for it. For example, on Pamba Island, where I first learned about geophagy, people ate and still eat four types of earth. Their Swahili names are Udongo, Ufue, Vitango Pepeta, also known as Vitango Mlima, and Mchanga. In other places, the variety of geophagic soils is even greater. And where does geophagy happen? We know for sure that it occurs on all six inhabited continents, and our best information about the worldwide distribution of geophagy comes from ethnographic literature, reports from anthropologists, missionaries, and explorers. I've assimilated data from the 367 such reports of geophagy, and it's clearly ubiquitous, figure 1.2. The methods for this analysis are described in chapter 2, and the worldwide distribution of pica is discussed in greater detail in chapter 9. The next type of pica, raw starch, or amylophagy. These days, it's easy to think of starches as a food group to avoid thanks to the demonization of carbohydrates by the infamous Atkins diet. But take a look at any USDA food pyramid and you'll see that starches, rice, pasta, bread, tortillas, ought to provide the bulk of our calories. Uncooked starches too have a place in our daily lives, although they have little to offer us calorically. Even so, they play a role in our cuisine they thicken Thanksgiving gravies, give lightness to Christmas shortbread, and prevent powdered sugar from caking. Raw starches have another function, one that is germane to pica. They sate extraordinarily strong cravings. Until a few decades ago, raw starch was available in most grocery stores in two different products, both of which were attractive to amylophages. There was cornstarch, mostly used for thickening foods, and there was laundry starch. In the 1960s, before the convenience of spray starch and the magic of wrinkle-free fabrics, if you wanted unwrinkled shirts, you needed laundry starch. Back then, laundry starch, which can be made from corn, wheat, or rice starches, was sold in big chunks. When it came time to do the starching, these chunks would be dissolved in warm water, laundered clothes would be dipped into the solution, and once dry, they would be ironed. Besides nicely crisping your collars, it was handy for preventing stains. The daily grime would bind to the starch rather than to the fibers of the cloth, making it easy to rinse out. Many women seeking substitutes for earth that's no longer available have turned to starch as a replacement. 
This was particularly common in the mid-1900s among black women who moved from the southern United States to industrial areas like Chicago and Detroit, where the earth they desired was not available. A photograph of a Washington, D.C. resident in which she and her giggling young son popped chunks of starch in their mouths appeared in a 1967 Time magazine with the caption, As good as clay, any day. Even Argo's cornstarch packaging suggests how its starch may be substituted for clay, albeit not for human consumption. On the outside of some Argo starch packages, there's a recipe for play clay in which Argo is the main ingredient. For many women, though, starch is not a mere substitute. It is the most desirable substance. An enormous variety of raw starches are craved and consumed around the world, including uncooked rice, wheat, cassava and rice flours, and raw starchy vegetables, tubers, including potatoes and cassava. However, at least in the United States, cornstarch once reigned over them all. The reign has been curtailed due in large part to the untiring efforts of Dr. Gerald Deese. Dr. Deese is an animated, hands-on physician who still makes house calls and cares seriously about public health. Think Cliff Huxtable meets Florence Nightingale. In the 1960s, when he was interning in a Brooklyn obstetrics clinic, he noticed that a lot of black women, maybe 99%, quote, were eating starch. Dr. Deese explained to me that in those days, starch was typically stocked in the snack aisle of the grocery store, along with cookies and candy. He, like many, believed that eating starch caused iron deficiency and so felt compelled to reduce its prevalence. He was also concerned about the weight gain associated with eating large quantities of starch. One box of cornstarch contains 1,680 calories, and some women eat as many as three boxes in a day. So, Dr. Deese became a one-man campaign to educate women about the dangers of starch eating. He helped to produce pamphlets with catchy, community-friendly slogans that were distributed by the National Urban League, such as, If you eat laundry starch, you'll become a stiff, and... Eating laundry starch from a box is as nutritious as eating rocks. And the main thing is what is that package of starch doing to your package, meaning fetus. He wrote columns in local newspapers and appeared on radio shows and news broadcasts to discuss the dangers of starch eating. His public awareness campaign efforts paid off tangibly in the reform of the packaging and the marketing of starch. And you can see the evolution of starch labels in figure 1.3. In 1977, the director of public relations at Best Food, which produces Argo starch, sent him a letter stating that the next order of their packaging material will have not recommended for food use prominently displayed on the front panel. Several years later, Best Foods made a second modification to Argo starch, one that morphed it into the product found on grocery store shelves today. They began to sell Argo starch in a powderized form. This was a significant blow to pica enthusiasts. The hard chunks of starch were extremely appealing, both because of their crunchy texture and the handiness of stowing them in a purse or innocent-looking paper bag. Although Dr. Deese has done much to halt amylophagy in the United States, there is evidence that it continues today. Currently on YouTube, there's a fascinating video of Serenity, a very pretty and very pregnant woman, eating cornstarch straight from the box. And if you join the cornstarch discussion group on Yahoo groups, you will see it is filled with women, quote unquote, freaking out over their, quote, addiction to this starch. Here's a typical response to a new member who introduced herself by explaining she had been addicted to cornstarch and baby powder for the last 15 years. Honey, we all eat starch or baby powder or baking soda, some kind of something strange in this group, lol. You be reading a lot of stories about those things. I personally love starch and have been eating it for 10 years now. Welcome home, LOL, all caps. A number of population-level studies of amylophagy from the last few decades corroborate these anecdotes. See more in Appendix B. In a study among 361 rural Mississippian women, 39% had eaten laundry starch. In East Texas, one-third of the 150 women interviewed had eaten starch or clay during at least one pregnancy. And of nearly a thousand randomly selected pregnant women in Chicago, 35% had eaten starch. In our own study of 2,368 pregnant pembins done in 2004, 36% had eaten uncooked rice in their current pregnancy. 
The amount of starch typically eaten has not been well measured. There are reports of women eating several boxes of cornstarch a day, but on Pemba, the mean amount of raw rice consumed was only about 26 grams, which is less than a palmful. Our third pica substance is ice, pagophagy. Ice is another common pica substance. Now, don't think that you practice pica just because you crunch the ice in your glass of Coke. A few cubes here and there is not pica. Pagophagists are people who love ice, crave ice, and need ice, and consequently eat a whole lot of it. How much is a lot? Well, the amount of ice they consume per day ranges from several glasses to several ice cube trays to several bowls to several pounds. While the written evidence of pagophagy indicates it's younger than geophagy, it too is centuries old. The oldest written description was authored by a French royal physician in the 17th century. In his concisely named oeuvre, the practice of physic wherein is plainly set forth in nature caused differences in several sorts of signs together with the cure of all diseases in the body of man with many additions in several places never printed before. End title. Reverius described the desiderata of those with pica. Some require sour things, sharp, bitter, and very cold, so that they are delighted with the continual use of unripe fruits, vinegar, snow, juice of lemons, pomegranates and oranges, cold water, snow, ice, and the like. Others desire earthy, dry, and burnt things as cloves, cinnamon, nutmegs, and other spices, salt ashes, chalk, and the like. Pegophagists are as picky about their ice as geophagists are about their earth. Once a person finds exactly the ice they like, they are hooked. Returning to the restaurant, or party store or laboratory ice maker again and again and again, sometimes multiple times per day. On icechewing.com, a website dedicated to the joys and difficulties of chewing lots of ice, the general consensus is that the ice at a sonic fast food drive-in is superior. Hi, I'm visiting the site for the first time as I sit here at work doing what I am notorious for, dot, 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 chewing ice. This is the first post I saw, and I am cracking up. Sonic has the best ice on earth, aside from what I call rabbit turd ice. I know that sounds gross, but I'm guessing if you love to chew ice like I do, you know what I mean. You know that ice that is soft and almost cylindrical in shape. Well, anywho, glad I found this site. Hopeful, knowing there are others out there like myself, I won't feel so strange about it. LOL. Another quote. Oh, that Sonic Ice goes so hard. I love Sonic Ice, lol. I thought I was the only one, but I buy it by the bags, not cups. It costs $2.12. In fact, there are so many fans of Sonic Ice that it even has its own Facebook page. When I wrote this in 2010, it had 208,554 fans. One quote on Sonic Ice's wall. I never all caps, join these things, but I really do, all caps, love sonic ice. The lengths people go to, especially pregnant women, to obtain the ice they crave can be astounding. They drive for hours or sleep very little so that they can crunch their ice away from the prying eyes of their family. One woman even bought the machine they use at Sonic. If you're interested, it's a Scotsman MDT2C12 touch-free air-cooled cubelet ice maker dispenser so that she could have it in her home. Found on eBay, paid $2,250 for the thing. Short of purchasing an industrial ice maker, there are other tactics to ensure a steady ice or frost supply. Frequently borrowing trays of ice cubes from many neighbors, leaving the door of a deep freezer open a crack so that frost continuously forms, and sending boyfriends or husbands out for ice, even in snowstorms. The next subheading is called a devouring passion. You may have noticed that one common feature among these pikas is strong cravings. To say that geophagists eat earth does not convey the frequently imperative nature of their drive. In fact, the desire for pica substances is so strong that those who have not experienced pica have long equated the strength of those cravings with those for tobacco, alcohol, and illicit drugs. Here's a quote from Jamaica in 1788. Their attachment to earth is greater than even that of dram drinkers to their pernicious liquor. 
in Georgia in 1840, from the oldest to little children. They are as much addicted to the eating of clay as some communities are to the use of tobacco and snuff. In England, 1842, powerfully do the morbid appetites enslave a large portion of mankind, from the opium of China to the tobacco of Virginia, from the beer of England and whiskey of Ireland to the clay of Carolina. And in India in 1906, the uncontrollable craving for this earth is like the opium or alcohol habit, and the ravenous symptoms and anxiety in the faces and actions of the eaters are similar to those found in the devotees of one or other of these vices. Those who actually engage in pica use similarly strong terms to characterize their cravings. Sometimes the language used to discuss pica is exactly that used to describe illicit drug use. For example, one of the Swahili terms used in Pembo to discuss pica is vileo, which is the same word used to describe addiction to cigarettes, alcohol, or hard drugs. A Washington, D.C. woman told a reporter for Time magazine that when I'm pregnant, it's just like taking dope. And such language is echoed in the Yahoo Cornstarch discussion group. I had been clean two days and went over to a friend's house. I had told this friend that I did cornstarch and was getting off it. They wanted me to finish this box. It only had a little in it, just to see how I'd do this. I finished off the starch, it wasn't much, and have been craving that taste ever since. I even drove miles out of my way to go to the store they were talking about, but it wasn't there. All caps. Man, I want that taste again. Given the strong desire, it should be no surprise that people have a very hard time ceasing their pica behavior. Pica literature is peppered with phrases like, nothing is sufficient to prevent them from indulging their morbid cravings. Descriptions of the punishment meted out to enslaved people who engaged in pica made it clear that even terrible physical punishment, including whippings and iron masks, was no deterrent. Chapter 6 says more about this. Difficulties with stopping are also a feature of 21st century pica behavior. In Laos, threats of arrest did not cause the cessation of geophagy. Women in the Yahoo Cornstarch discussion group spent a lot of time sharing advice on techniques for curbing behavior. Promises to God, extraordinary weight gain, and threats of divorce are insufficient to dissuade some. Pica today remains the devouring passion it was described as a century ago, and for this reason, the phrase craving and purposive consumption is an important part of the definition of pica. So who does pica? We know that people around the world engage in it. At this very moment, there are hundreds of thousands of people experiencing cravings to eat all kinds of non-food items. But there are some segments of the population more likely to engage in pica than others. Pregnant women easily comprise the largest proportion of consumers, while children form the second largest group, pregnant women. Pica is so overwhelmingly associated with pregnancy that in some places it's synonymous with pregnancy. For example, when a senior government physician in Malawi was asked if village women ate clay in pregnancy, she smiled. It would be very surprising if pregnant women in Malawi did not eat clay. That's how you know when you are pregnant. In Nigeria, the association of this custom with pregnancy reaches the point that women note axiomatically that if a woman is observed to eat clay, she must be pregnant. This association with pregnancy is both ubiquitous and very old. Hippocrates, 460 to 377 BCE, is responsible for the first written record of geophagy, and in it he specifically identifies pregnant women. If a pregnant woman would like to eat earth or charcoal and then eats it, the child that enters this world will be marked on its head from these substances. One of the most luscious passages about pica during pregnancy is found in the Ragu Vamsha, a 13th century epic Indian poem that traces the genealogy of dynasty of warrior kings. Queen Sudakshina becomes a geophagist during her pregnancy. She had set her heart upon clay in preference to all other objects of taste. Although the king didn't like the smell of her, quote, mouth fragrant with clay, his aversion to her earthy breath was overshadowed by her alluring pregnant body. Quote, as days rolled on, her two breasts growing exceedingly plump and with nipples black all round, far surpassed the loveliness of a couple of well-formed lotus buds with black bees perched upon them." End quote. 
There's also plenty of scientific evidence that pica is associated with pregnancy. Biomedical studies of the prevalence of pica in dozens of antenatal populations in North America, South America, Africa, and Europe have shown again and again that pregnant women regularly engage in pica. More in Appendix B. Children. Young children are the second most likely to purposively consume non-food substances, although there are far fewer anecdotal reports of their pica behavior than for pregnant women. Please note, pica among children does not include exploratory mouthing behaviors. To be considered pica, children must actively seek out clay, paper, chalk, dirt, termite hills, etc. For this reason, pica cannot possibly occur until after children are over two years of age. There are also far fewer clinic-based studies of the prevalence of pica among school children, but the few that have been conducted suggest ranges from 1.7% among children in upstate New York to 74.4% among Zambian school children. More in Appendix C. Animals. Although this book is about human behavior, geophagy in the animal kingdom is widespread enough to merit mention. It's important to know that non-food consumption is not only a human activity because it suggests that there is some benefit to the phenomenon among us human animals. Wild animals almost always behave in ways that are likely to promote their survival. The below referenced instances of geophagy among animals do not include visits to salt deposits or the practice of licking the earth in areas with high salt concentration. In such instances, the motive is clear. The animal is seeking sodium. By geophagy, I'm referring to animals who actively seek out the earth itself in the absence of sodium, and many, many species do this. There are some wonderful review articles about geophagy in non-human primates, terrestrial mammals, herbivores, and birds, and there are an even greater number of scientific articles detailing observations among individual species. For example, along the border between Kenya and Uganda, elephants have excavated deep caves in their quest for earth. In Yellowstone, grizzly bears consume soil in early spring and late summer. Smaller mammals do too, including hindgut herbivores like rhinoceros, zebra, and horse. Ruminants like giraffe, kudu, elan, antelope, water buffalo, and doker. And small herbivores like tapir, grouse, rabbit, squirrel, koala, and tortoise. But why? By now, you must be wondering why all these human and non-human animals are eating earth and starch and ice, given the hassle, the cost, and the pleas not to. And that is the exact question I propose to answer in this book. It's a tough one. After all, scientists continue to debate its function, if any, after 2,000 years of study. But given how widespread the practice is, especially among some of the most vulnerable segments of our society, pregnant women and children, it's one worth answering. In the pursuit of an answer, we will scoot through the history of medicine, touch on some of the world's greatest literature, and enter the guts and minds of pregnant women encountering armchair anthropologists, Nobel laureates, and tortured enslaved people along the way. We will unravel royal intrigues, become acquainted with several pantheons, and test a number of scientific hypotheses using a range of data, from randomized clinical trials to mineralogical analyses. But best of all, through the concurrent study of culture and biology, we will make scientific progress by making sense of some very chaotic data. To begin, I'll outline the biocultural framework, the perspective I have used to study pica. You may want to skim it if you are reading only for content about pica, but it does introduce some useful concepts that are peppered throughout the rest of the book. The rest of part one, chapters three through five, further contextualize pica by dealing broadly with humans' use of non-food substances. In chapter three, medicine you can walk on, the amazing properties of clays, I describe the many ways that pica substances have been used both internally and topically to heal a range of ailments from the bitings of venomous poison outcasting beasts to explosive diarrhea. In chapter four, Religious geophagy, sacredness you can swallow, details the use of earth in religion, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and hoodoo folk magic. Both chapters three and four deal with geophagy that is not pica. These are not instances of craving earth, but provide an important context for the practices of pica. Chapter five, poisons and pathogens, presents a darker side of pica and describes the harms that pica substances have been associated with. 
With this background, you will have the knowledge necessary for the second part of the book, which evaluates the many explanations of pica. Part two deals uniquely with the etiology or causes of pica and opens with chapter six, dismissal and damnation, about the historical perspectives on the causes of pica among six groups who have most frequently been documented as engaging in pica. For each group, I suggest why such conclusions can be rejected. Chapters 7, 8, and 9 are the most data-rich, scientific chapters of the book. They describe and evaluate the three most plausible hypotheses about the physiological functions of pica, that it is a response to hunger, that it is a response to a micronutrient deficiency like iron or calcium, and that it occurs to protect against harm from toxins and pathogens. By chapter 10, entitled Putting the Pica Pieces Together, you'll be very knowledgeable about pica. As you read, you may want to refer to the glossary and appendices at the end of the book. Four of the appendices summarize different types of biomedical studies on pica. Additionally, there are two more that attempt to organize different types of information on pica, a timeline of notable moments in the history of pica, my personal favorite, and instances of pica in literature. One proviso. This is not an arcane volume that requires intimate knowledge of nutritional, soil, or biomedical sciences. After several years of studying pica, I find it too fascinating a topic to address only in academic journals. Thus, I've sought to write a book that is both accessible and pleasurable for people with a variety of backgrounds. In fact, you don't even need to have heard of pica to enjoy this book. I've worked hard to distill and translate the jargon from thousands of sources so that the only prerequisite to reading this book is a healthy dose of curiosity. Of course, if you would like greater scientific detail than I provide here, I would encourage you to track down some of the hundreds of references with which this book is laced. Finally, if you have specific questions about PICA or want to share your own personal experiences with it, feel free to contact me at my website, www.sarahyoung.org, or my current email, sarah.young at northwestern.edu. Thank you very much. Welcome to Sausage of Science. I am Chris. And I am Kara. Eating a cutie. I am eating a cutie. It was from our, our department holiday party. Right on. Which I should also show you. I took it off because it was uncomfortable. I wore this amazing sweater too. So you can't see it, but she has a sweater that says... Don't get your tinsel in a tangle. With a cat. And there are poof tinsel. balls on the arm. Yeah. Do your cats eat tinsel? I used to have to pull tinsel hanging out of the butthole of my cats. <laughs> so we usually don't let it get that far. Usually we end up pulling like a foot of it out of the throat. <laughs> be a, there'd be a... And like they're so mad at you. Like I wanted uh -huh. to eat that tinsel. Why would you remove it from my mouth? Uh-huh. And just like, cat, you have a death wish. Yep. Anyway, that laughter you heard is our guest today. We have Sarah Young from Northwestern University joining us today on the line. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how exciting to be here. Do you have any interesting tinsel cat-related stories you would like to share? <laughs> well, I think, I think our interview with her is all about eating non-traditional food stuff, so... Yeah, I guess we had a segue to this without realizing we had a segue to this, huh? But you can answer that question. you have any cat? <laughs> well, you're halfway right. Yes, I have pulled tinsel out of both ends of my cats. <laughs> and also, to your point, yes, pica is about the consumption of non-food items, but an important caveat, it's the craving and subsequent consumption of them. Mm. So, Can you give us any insight into why cats eat tinsel? <laughs> that is what a is it? Grade. <laughs> so I, I want to share with you the titles of two of several papers I read. The two most recent ones that we'll talk about. Sarah is not the first author on, but they are straight up in her wheelhouse. So one that was uh, published this year in American Journal of Human Biology, first author is Joshua Miller with several co-authors. Shailene, is that it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Collins. Shailene Collins. I should let you say all the names so I don't put your name. Mashud Omotayo? Um, I'm enjoying your pronunciation, so I'll let you go. I don't hey. know that they will. <laughs> Stephanie Martin. 
AKA Lonre. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Catherine Dickin. AKA Kate Dickin. All right. And I'm assuming S E R A is Sarah. That's right. Yeah. And we had the pleasure of sitting with each other, and Kara was on the other side. I don't know if she met you at the HBA luncheon a few years ago. So I was pretty sure that I had it right from previous exposure. But the title of this paper is Geophagic Earths Consumed by Women in Western Kenya Contain Dangerous Levels of Lead, Arsenic, and Iron. And the other piece that looks like it's just come out in American Journal of Physical Anthropology with Paula Pebsworth as first author, Michael Huffman, Joanna Lambert, any AKAs there? <laughs> no. Called geophagy among non-human primates, not cats. A systematic <laughs> sorry, that wasn't in the title, but it should be. A systematic review of current knowledge and suggestions for future directions. So I'll start how we always start. There we go. Let's just start with how you got into this wonderful trade that you're in. Tell us your anthropology origin story. How'd you get interested in anthro and why did you decide to pursue it as a career? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you asked that question to everyone. It's really interesting to hear the answers. And I also just want to thank you guys for making this podcast because we don't know enough about the behind the scenes stuff of academia, both of like our decisions about what to study and, and how we do what we do. So um, thanks for the behind the curtain peek, all of these podcasts. It's oh, truly it, our pleasure. It, it really does. It is a lot of fun for us. So it doesn't feel like a job or effort. <laughs> well, let me ask this question on air. How much is edited? Generally, yeah, a terrible amount. well, no, but I mean, we try to keep them listenable, like around 30 minutes. Okay. And then all the us, digressions that are meaningless, my bad jokes. <laughs> Except the Seinfeld one, obviously. And anything that you find later that you're like, I shouldn't have said that on air. Please edit that out. Mm -hmm. Okay. By the way, that awards lunch that we sat together during was really fun, Chris. And Josh Miller, author of Geophagic Arts Consumed in Western Kenya, was winning the undergraduate prize that the HBA gives for his work on PICA. So That's that cool. Fun. I remember one of your students had won an award, but I couldn't remember the name. So thank you for getting that on tape. Okay. okay so me and Anthropology origin story. I was a fairly naive, even very naive, Midwestern kid growing up in Michigan. And I ended up through, you know- All roads lead to Michigan. Sorry, we had this- So true. <laughs> went also, to Michigan. I'm gonna interject, what part of Michigan? So the thumb, I'm from Port Huron, Michigan. I'm from down here, Monroe County. Oh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Irons is also from Port Huron, Michigan. Oh, I have poor her on stories as well, but they have nothing to do with anthropology. So we'll save those. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I'm from Port Huron, Michigan, which is coincidentally where Bill Irons is from. I was a very kind of mediocre mid Midwesterner who didn't know about the world. And then I found myself going to this amazing international school in Wales. It's called Atlantic College or United World College of the Atlantic. It's a school where the International Baccalaureate program was developed. Huh. And I was there with kids of all walks of life. So I was like 15 or 16 and we were there for two years. And, you know, the Dutch prince went and now king went there, but also, you know, former soldiers from Eastern Europe were there with you know, the Hungarian chess champion, and then mediocre me who didn't know Israel and Palestine were really in conflict, I'm embarrassed to say. So I came back from those two years, like ready to know about the world and thinking we're all similar and we're all different and how is it that the world is as it is and it turns out there's a discipline that studies it and that's anthropology. So I went for it. I, I majored in the anthropology of religion, in fact, as an undergrad at the University of Michigan. University of Michigan difference, man. It's gonna be, so yesterday we had a Michigan alum for grad school and then tomorrow Robin Nelson is also a University of Michigan alum awesome. and I went there for undergrad. Awesome. Oh. Yeah, so my undergraduate time at the University of Michigan was really informative because I had my first field experience there too. I went with Beverly Strassman to hmm. Mali and helped for a summer of field work. Uh, Betsy Abrams and I were together for that summer. And that is a summer I will never forget for my life. So Betsy and I are like field sisters after all of the experiences we had there. And I learned a lot about the world. I learned a lot about science and I learned a lot about what good mentoring is and isn't from that summer. You after that experience, what made you want to pursue anthropology as a career? Well, so I was studying anthropology of religion. I was really interested in religious conversion as a strategy for 
at sort of having a better life and what that meant. And I was thinking of some of the more esoteric sides of religion. And, you know, the Dogen religion is, is really quite famous. So think more of the esoteric sides. And then I started to think more on like what religion, what resources religion could help one to get. But then I was spending the summer measuring 1,000 diaperless kits. And you see all kinds of social dynamics and all kinds of health problems. And I became really amazed. I mean, I'm still naive at this point, like amazed by all of the health problems faced in many places, but in this particular place. And I have become in my career more and more biomedical every step of the way. So I went on to do a, a master's in medical anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. Hmm. And then to my surprise, I did uh, a PhD in nutrition. You could say nutritional anthropology at Cornell University. And I didn't know that, <laughs> I'm letting the world know my naivety. I didn't know nutrition was a department. I had done an ethnography of maternal anemia and, and there was a professor at Cornell, Rebecca Stoltzfus, who said, oh, would you like to do your PhD in nutrition? And like I said, I didn't know that was a department, but fortunately enough for me, Gretel Pelto was in that department and um, she became my primary advisor and really taught me almost everything I know about nutritional anthropology. So then how did you go from nutrition, which is, you know, a broad topic and you could choose any number of things within it to specifically geophagy? Yeah. And so pica. Back to my, um, and pica. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> That goes back to my master's degree. So I was doing maternal anemia, studying like how people understood what anemia was, what they understood the causes and the consequences were. And that was in Zanzibar. I spoke very fluently at that time, Swahili. I'd lived with a Swahili family for six or seven months. And so I was working in Zanzibar, in Pemba in particular, so a less visited island in the archipelago. And I was saying to this woman, Mama, tell me, what is it that you eat when you're pregnant? And she said, well, every day, twice a day, I take earth from the wall and I eat it. And that conversation was in Swahili, and I turned to my research assistant and I said, like, hmm, did she say what I think she said? And she said, yes, she did. And it was like a moment. You know, some, sometimes things happen and you're like, you can remember how the sun was falling, you can remember how the woman was sitting. It was like a thing. Hmm. The focus of my master's thesis was anemia. I didn't explore this fully, but it was on my mind. And when it came time to think about what I wanted to do my PhD on, I had so many unanswered questions about it. So can you just, for those listening who haven't already had the pleasure, tell us what pica is. So pica, it's spelled P-I-C-A. It comes from the magpie, which is the, a bird thought to have an indiscriminate appetite. Huh. So hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a physician said, oh, these women with these cravings for things that aren't food are just like the magpie. They both have indiscriminate appetites. Like a pica, the magpie. As it turns out, magpies don't have indiscriminate appetites. They're building their nests with these shiny, sparkly things like tinsel, probably. And humans also have very particular cravings for this stuff. They, there are a very small number of people with schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder who are eating, maybe you could say anything, or very dangerous stuff. But that population I set aside in my research. And I work with people who are, what is mentally healthy? That's a question for debate, but without obvious mental morbidities. And the cravings that they have are for very particular types of earth or very particular types of starches or very particular types of even ice really particular. I'll just say particular one more time. <laughs> pica is this umbrella term for all of these cravings. And then there are kind of manifestations of so geophagy, geo, earth, amylo, starch. And then the third kind of hallmark type is pagophagy or pegophagy, which is ice cravings. Hmm. So one thing I'd like to ask, and this might be getting into like the really fine details, but you said they like a very particular, we'll use the word again, type of earth. How was that identified? Mm -hmm. I go out, I see different kinds of dirt. I could not tell you one from the other or if they were different. Um, yeah. So how do people actually go about identifying the earth that fulfills the craving they have or whatever micronutrient they're lacking? Yeah. So smell, that's the big one. And so especially people who are trying to stop their cravings say like, you know, I have to close the windows when it rains so that I don't smell the delicious aroma. Or people, when they're not used to like their normal source, they will kind of moisten the earth to say like, oh, this is the good stuff, or this isn't the good stuff. Have you picked up that skill in your work? Can you now tell the difference? You know, I went as far as to get pregnant 
and twice and have two babies just to see if I would get the, get that skill. That's some serious dedication to yeah. experimental anthropology. NSF should be paying for my children's well-being, I swear, but they're not. <laughs> um, so no, I mean, I've eaten all kinds of these things. I mean, participant observation, come on, people. Yeah, that was my question for you. We just talked to Julie Lesnick about entomophagy, and she said it took her a while, and she finally realized she needed to try these things. So yeah. what was your experience like? When that woman turned to me in that very first day, I tasted it, and, and I've tasted almost every other one since. I've never had the craving for it, but I can say that knowing that it has medicinal properties, I was you know, in grad school and you have zero dollars. And of course you would like sleep on a greasy piece of cardboard at the airport in Dar es Salaam because who has $30 for a hotel room? Yeah, so that was me, but I treated myself to a piece of pizza in the airport restaurant, chicken pizza, I will add, that made me sicker than a dog. I mean, I was just so everything GI, but I was like, ahep, and I have my samples with me. So I broke into them and I ate a lot of clay that night and it definitely helped me feel better on my hobo greasy carpet airport hotel. Mat. That's a really interesting story though that, I mean, you went for it and that it was super beneficial in the end. Yeah, I was desperate and you know, it worked. So I find this fascinating that uh, you describe the cravings as similar to drug cravings, right? This is a strong ass craving. Yeah. So one, who is having these cravings? And two, I didn't quite make it all the way through the non-human primate paper. Admittedly, I was reading it right before. Do we see or have any way to tell if non-human primates have similar cravings or on the same scale? Well, let me answer the first question about who has these cravings in the human population first. So the strength of the cravings is something that is worth commenting on. So like in Swahili, people say, like, I have vileo for for earth, for example, but you can also have vileo for alcohol or recreational drugs. It's like a, a substance that you're deeply addicted to. And people talk about it, like I need my fix or I've been using for so many years. So that's a commonality. The people who have these cravings, the hallmark craving is a person is a pregnant woman. So in a lot of places, if you a woman eating earth, that's kind of like, uh-huh. She's pregnant, like a one-to-one mm. one relationship. That's not the only population. So, I mean, there are a lot of clinical studies where people with celiac disease, people with anemia, people on dialysis, so these different biomedical conditions. But then outside of diagnoses, you also see, so the pregnant women outside of clinical study, little kids. So mm. I'm not talking about toddlers where their mouth is their, their CPU and, you know, everything just goes in their mouth. That wouldn't be pica, right? Because they're not craving. They're just learning. Mm-hmm. But school children, there's a lot of reports of school children dealing chalk from like the teacher's boards just to eat it and, and uh, especially termites. So could you, for our audience especially, it seems like one of the common nutrients that people need or get from geophagy is iron. What are some of the other common ones that people are consuming so that they can get these various nutrients? Well, let's talk about the hypotheses about why geophagy happens. And the one that you're talking about is that it's like Mother Nature's supplement, like a vitamin from, mm -hmm. from Mother Nature. It's definitely the most commonly held one, and it's definitely intuitive. Makes sense, like, oh, it's not in your whatever was in your bowl, so go out to the world to get it. That said, we've done a lot of experiments on looking at the bioavailability. So is that iron absorbable by your body? And it turns out it, it doesn't seem like it is. So on the cover of my book, Craving Earth, you see a picture of a hand holding earth, and you can see little red flecks on it. Red is pretty indicative of iron, which would suggest that, like, oh, if you can see iron, certainly there is a lot of iron. But we did a lot of in vitro work where it seems that people aren't being able to get it. And in fact, I mean, think about a mud mask. You know, it's, it absorbs all of the toxins and draws all the impurities from your skin. It's like a mud mask, but for your gut. And so if you eat an iron-rich steak or an iron-rich bean dish, what we're seeing is that some of these clays, not all, but some of them can absorb the iron that's even in the food you eat. So even though it's intuitive, there's less support for that. Hmm. The second hypothesis is that it's not adaptive, and that's probably, we call that the first hypothesis. I mean, people have been saying like, Ugh, it's women who are doing this. Certainly, they know not what they do. <laughs> They're hysterical. <laughs> that's right. 
<laughs> it's pregnant women, Lord knows they know not what they do. Or it's brown people, it's like, you know, the savages. Was, there are many, many, many armchair anthropologists writing about what the natives are doing. I mean, if white men had been doing this more, I would say we would understand the etiology of geophagy and pica. I would be irrelevant to this conversation. <laughs> The non-adaptive hypothesis, the supplementation hypothesis, and then the third, which is really counterintuitive, is that it's protective. So dirt is something you're supposed to get rid of, right? You, you, know, you sweep it, you wash it, you don't play in it, and you certainly don't eat it. But as it turns out, this earth is often clay-rich, and clay has amazing properties in that it can bind with harmful chemicals in your diet or pathogens, well, like viruses and bacteria. So to go back to the animals then, are they having the same types of cravings and the same impacts? Cravings is not something I have ever tried to evaluate in animals that can't speak. But we can look at the risks that animals take in order to get this clay. So Jamie Gillardi has done, that's G-I-L-A-R-D-I, has studied um, geophagy parrots. And parrots are in their safe space when they're in the canopy. But they're very happy to descend out to like these very exposed cliffs, for example, in order to get that clay where they're much more susceptible to predators. There's a number of examples in non-human primates as well where they'll come out of the forest and be very open to predators in order to get this clay. I guess that kind of brings up another question that Chris had sent you is that some of the soil is being sold in markets, which sounds kind of, you know, crazy to some degree, like, it's dirt. Can't you just go pick up the dirt for free? <laughs> so maybe you could walk us through why this soil is being sold in markets. How is it actually being marketed? Why people might go pay for it rather than go find it on their own? Yeah, soils are being sold in markets because people are willing to pay for it. I mean, that's the <laughs> answer. But why are they willing? And I think it's worth saying that maybe you think that they're sold at markets like open air market, you know, kind of rural everything is being sold that's true it's being sold next to the tomatoes like you know in piles in rural east africa but i was actually in a grocery store in i think it was kusumu buying um black peppercorn they have really excellent peppercorns to bring as a present home to my husband and there were lovely bags like plastic bags packaged under the label yankee doodle where it was like little packages of clay so it's also sold in a very like kind of refined way. And that's East Africa. You can go to, I can't remember the exact website, but if you, you, I know you can find it on Amazon where they will sell you clay sent discreetly to your house. And so here in the United States, you can also buy it. In fact, there's a, a documentary called Eat White Dirt and it's all about geophagy in the South here. Now I buy dirt all the time at mm -hmm. Lowe's and Home Depot for gardening and it comes in a variety of, lovely odoriferous flavors, but it sounds like they're selling it specifically for geophagy or are they actually marketing it or are they just sort of, it's just sort of out there for whatever you want? This is America, so everything is litigious, right? So I think the phrasing around, I've seen a lot of different ways of saying like, we're not responsible if you die from eating this or are sick from eating this, but they say like, grandma's delicious white clay or for medicinal purposes or there's some language that, you know, they're not culpable if something happens, but clearly this is for eating. So a follow-up, you're suggesting I could send some student researchers out there and we could do a geophagy study here in the South? You would delight me if you did that. Oh my God. Show them the documentary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm adding it to my human variation syllabus right now. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> tap, tap, tap. <laughs> Seriously, that's fascinating, and I love projects like that. I was talking with a reporter at the BBC who was saying, like, oh, where can I get this? I'm, I said, I'm sure if you go to any, what they're, they're called ethnic shop in London, and sure enough, half an hour later, she had some. Huh. You just have to know to ask, and people don't talk about it. It's not something that is just brought up. So is it not brought up because of kind of typical human disgust reactions, or is there a shame that's involved here? What's, what do you think the driving force is behind that? I think there's a lot to it. On, on one hand, people just don't know to ask. So in nutrition, we do dietary recalls and we say like, how often did you eat X, Y, and Z in the last day or week or whatever the recall period is? We don't often think to ask about Earth. So sometimes it's just forgotten. Mm. 
out of ignorance. Um, there is also a lot of stigma around it. People get really upset, like taxi drivers. And when I tell them that's what I study, like, why would anyone put that into their mouths? That's disgusting. There's also fear of biomedical reprisal is maybe too strong of a word, but I, one of the most offensive things is when a study coordinator said to me, oh yeah, Sarah, even if I did this, I wouldn't tell you because you, you would write a book you about me. problems. And I'm like, dang, Joy, we've been working together for years now, and we're asking ladies in the study if they have these cravings. So we talked about the functional or adaptive aspects, but this paper is about other metals that you found in them. So are there some negative biological implications associated with eating? Yeah, and we are not at the point in our understanding of GFAG to say that there's caveat-free, it's good for you, or caveat-free, it's bad for you. And there's clearly some items that are super risky to eat, like lead paint chips or battery that's glazed with lead. Those are scary and dangerous. And as you saw in this article in the 2018 piece, there's really high levels of both lead and arsenic in these samples that women are eating in, in Copamega. These were collected both at women's houses, but also bought in the market. And what we find is not even like a little bit of lead, like a lot of lead. Wow. And that's just one of the things that can be risky about geophagy. So you can totally wear out your teeth. I mean, that's a big concern. And if you eat enough earth, you can have impaction in the intestines. So like, you know, we're literally nothing will, will move through anymore. Fun stuff. One more question. You're doing a lot more than pica and geophagy, right? So your research is in food insecurity as well, which now that I understand better, seems like a natural extension. Every single paper, you're one of many, many authors. So you have a lot of collaborations going on. So can you tell us about these projects and, and how they fit together? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like the overarching theme of my research is maternal and child health and how these vulnerable populations adapt to adverse circumstances. So you know, my first love, pica, it was how do you adapt to anemia? And even more, I mean, looks like pica isn't a very efficacious adaptation to pica, but that's how I fell in love with pica. I moved from there to how women were feeding their infants in the context of HIV. So what are the best and safest ways of feeding an infant when you yourself are HIV infected and your breast milk can be a vector? And from there, I'm just, you know, dang it, I became a mom myself. And I realized how hard. I can remember writing this review of the importance of exclusive breastfeeding while baby Stella is like in her rocker next to me going like, wait, mama, feed me, feed me. Like, don't you know I'm writing an article about the importance of exclusive breastfeeding? The irony. And I started to realize just how, how many resources go into being a mom or a parent. And thinking more broadly about food insecurity led me then to water insecurity. And that's really what I spend all of my time on. As it turns out, we know from a lot of great anthropologists like Amber Butich, Craig Hadley, Jed Stevenson, people have been doing great stuff with understanding how water insecurity impacts mental health, physical health, social fabric. It's great. Those people have been pioneering at like quantifying household water insecurity. But we have this measure of household food insecurity, these nine questions that work supposedly very well in Atlanta or Kenya or Pakistan. The same nine items, sort of, we can quantify it. We don't have that for water insecurity currently, or we didn't. So for the last couple of years, I've been working with a lot, a lot of collaborators to develop these magic items, nine, well, we're at 12 items that can measure water insecurity in an equivalent way across uh, low and middle income countries. And that all goes back to these pictures that women showed me in Kenya when I asked mama, take pictures of what influences how you feed your infants. And I got back all these pictures of water, which is not something I had expected. So you've worked with several of our other interviewees, Asher Rossinger, um, uh, I think you worked with Alex and Amber. Uh, yes, well, all of those people. They, and probably, and awesome. They've really brought me into the HBA fold. Hmm. Nice, nice, nice. All right. So to wrap up, we also, we like to start with a certain question. We like to end with a certain question. So what is it that you do for fun? Or what are you reading, watching, or listening to that's non-academic that you're enjoying right now? You know, Northwestern recently interviewed me about my work on food and water insecurity. It's like, what's your advice to a young anthropologist? And 
you know, I said you ought to be having fun. If your work isn't fun, like you shouldn't be doing it. Which isn't to say that I don't have fun doing other things than my work, but I try to really pick work and collaborators who are fun because life is too short to work with a bunch of dicks. <laughs> so true. Hallelujah. Uh, yeah. So I try to have fun. My group, we have fun. We had a white elephant party at our house. My husband is also a professor of engineering. We had a white elephant party with our groups this this weekend. It was good, good fun. But also, I am loving me some Beyonce. That is for sure. Girls and I are dancing to Beyonce and husband too. Good times dancing around the house. We've been taking our, we have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. We've been giving them like a tour to 1980s movies. So like watching Goonies, watching um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Romancing the Stone. Was a, I love that movie. It's love such it. a good movie. <laughs> well, good quotes. <laughs> I mean, one of the sites for our HY studies in Cartagena, and it just gave like, uh, Justin Stoller, geographer, is leading that work. He's amazing too. It was just like, Cartagena, how I think of it for as a household water and security experiences field site in Cartagena of a large emerald. <laughs> I love that movie. That movie is my childhood. So I totally, I, I love that this, this is what you're exposing your children to. I think that's fantastic. So that's fun. Are you taking them through things like the dark crystal? Oh yes, also yeah. for sure, for mm -hmm. sure. The labyrinth I'm always hit or miss. Apparently, Right after I was born, my parents showed my, my brother, who was four years older than me, the labyrinth. And he didn't sleep for a week because he thought that David Bowie was going to come steal me. Nice. Well, guys, thank you for having me. Sarah, if anyone wants to get in touch with you about your work, how do they do that? Twitter? Well, I have, yes, I have been forced into Twitter by Wendy Jepson and Amber Wutich. I thank am you. at prop Sarah Young, S-E-R-A Young. My website is www.sarayoung.org, where you can see all of the work that my awesome group is doing. You can find me in the Twitterverse at Chris underscore L-Y. And me at Kara Akabak. We have been the Sausage of Science. Thank you, Sarah, so much again. And thank you all for listening. You should definitely subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and share it with your friends. <laughs>